0: This is the Bob Olin Show on KDAL. And away we go, the Bob Olin Show on the 10th of October. Good morning, Bob. Well,
1: good morning, Dave. How are
0: you doing this morning?
1: We're doing very, very well. Um, kind of interesting listening to the weather forecast. A little, a little <laughs> below normal in terms of temperature, but uh, I think for many people we had a frost, first frost of the year. We had a little nip earlier there, but you know, Maybe our growing season is being extended a little bit because we'll go past the average frost date, typically at the airport here in Duluth. Uh, average frost date is about September 21st, just about the fall uh, equinox. And uh, along the lake it's about October 2nd, so here we're at the 10th of October. And we may have uh, frozen for a lot of people who had a frost uh, the last couple of nights but certainly uh, down along the lake we haven't had a frost yet, so we're really kind of uh, pushing the limits and maybe extending the season just a little bit, which is uh, all right on my part, for yeah.
0: sure. you still got stuff in the ground?
1: Oh, we got it in the ground. we still got potatoes uh, to dig and, yeah. and other things that we're kind of leaving in the ground as things begin to cool down, and we got good drainage there, but then um, yeah, we protected some things, so we're still getting some uh, mm-hmm. of our frost-sensitive crops. We're still getting eggplant and tomatoes and And beets and greens and other things like that that uh, we had to protect a little bit. But nonetheless, it's been uh, a real interesting year. I don't have to tell people that. (laughs) You know, I believe now Do you have the current statistics uh, in terms of precipitation. We were way below normal during the growing season. Yeah, we're above Uh,
0: normal. We're 1.46, so about an inch and a half above normal for the year. Isn't that something?
1: And uh, you know, this is of course a good time to get mm. that moisture. The lawns have certainly greened up yeah. uh, very quickly. We we really want to get that moisture down in the soil. Actually, it it kind of saved us last year where we didn't get that uh, frost penetration, so most of the snow melt went down into the ground, and then we had a pretty good reservoir of moisture down below. And then, of course, last spring we got very very dry in May and June, driest uh, May and June to record. So. Uh, You know, it became very apparent to us as we went through a very dry year that water is really the critical uh, aspect, one of several, but uh, for us a very critical aspect of growing uh, anything out of doors. And uh, I think going forward we can kind of expect some of these uh, temperature swings and some of these rainfall events. And there's going to be, I'm sure, a lot of discussion about uh, the climate as we As we move forward. But the good news is uh, we are getting the water. We'd like to see it a little bit more evenly distributed, of course. (laughs) But uh, I guess we can't really dial that in. But nonetheless, uh, the fact that we're getting some moisture now, uh, we're getting uh, moisture, of course, down into that soil profile. Mm -hmm. I think that's all good. It's good for your trees. It's good for your shrubs. Obviously good for the lawns. Uh, They really have greened up. Have you had to mow yours again this (laughs) fall, Dave?
0: Yeah, it's been, uh, well, I mowed it, I think, last week, and it was terribly... Sick, and i'm sure yes. it's uh grown ever since so i may have to mow it again i guess
1: yeah the landscapes uh are lush and green now and mm. quite a reversal from right. what we had just a, a few months ago and i was asked a question the question today you know we talk a lot about lawns lawn is probably uh the one uh green plant at least our perennial lawn species Uh, that we like to get a little fertility too, nitrogen fertilizer in the fall, but it's getting a little bit late for that. I just really don't like to encourage a lot of late fall growth. Uh, We really want to do that. mentioned people right around uh, Labor Day there so the plant can pick it up and then begin to harden off. We push them too hard right now with a little fertility, and then they don't really have the opportunity uh, to properly harden off. But fall fertilizers, early fall fertilization is what we're looking for. I think I probably would uh would not be fertilizing at this point. I'd be concentrating more on uh getting leaves up and composted and off the ground at this point and we're gonna have plenty of time coming into late spring, which our next opportunity to provide some fertility for our lawns. They look lush, they look green. Most have come back from um, from that droughty period. Uh some people have had to overseed where they actually got so dry that they lost uh, some of the lawn species, so they have to come in and, and replant. This is not uncommon in an out year. And I know we've got a broad listing range here in the audience. Uh, some places we get north in the northern parts of the Iron Range and farther north, they had plenty of moisture. We get a little farther south of where we're broadcasting from in the Carlton area, and they were very, very droughty. Uh, kind of the epicenter of the drought down there. So it was really quite variable. But everything seems to be uh, greening up at this point, which is uh, very good news, Dave.
0: Yep. We have another uh, soaking rain, apparently, coming on Friday, from what we understand. Rain is pretty much likely on Friday. I'm not sure exactly how much, but it looks like an all-day event.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's uh, nobody likes it sloppy, particularly on a leaf-looking weekend uh, like the one uh-huh. we've got coming up here. But nonetheless, uh, the, the moisture is extremely important. Getting into the ground this time of year is uh, is critical. Well, Washington, uh, you know, see when that first uh, snowfall hits, I would always like to have at least a couple inches of snow on the ground before we get cold, uh, mm-hmm. colder temperatures just so that we don't get that real deep frost penetration. But once again, uh, that's kind of beyond uh, my control, perhaps beyond yours as well, Dave. <laughs> I hope so, yeah.
0: It's not up to any of us here on Earth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, I think we are fortunate. And this uh, phenomenon mm-hmm. of extending your growing season and not having really a killing frost until in October here. Uh, maybe we've got a yeah. week or two uh, lengthening in the growing season. that could have some uh, significant effects on the types of plants we can grow, as well as what our planting schedules are are certainly going to be, Dave.
0: It must have been a good growing season down in Anoka, where the world uh, record pumpkin was grown. And we'll have details on that coming up. First, we've got to take a break. The Bob Olin Show here on KDAL. All right, Bob, before we get to that record-setting pumpkin, we do have a, a caller on the phone. Hi, who's this? Uh,
2: this is Pat from Superior. Go ahead, Pat. I, I just Hello, wondered, Pat. you mentioned a university apple, a new one, across between Honeycrisp and Vestar. And and what was that name of that apple again?
1: That apple's got a very interesting name. It's called Kudo. KUDO? KUDO. I believe it's K-U-D-O.
2: Okay. Just, re-
1: just recently introduced. The nice thing is it's not restricted. Uh, you know, the University of Minnesota, and uh, one of the reasons for this is I explained when Honeycrisp was so successful, and that was what we call open source. In other words, the nurseries could produce it and sell it to anyone anywhere in the world. It was uh, so well received, this unique com- uh, combination of Juicy, sweet, it stored well, it was a very desirable apple, so it went throughout the world. You know, there's more to it than genetics to get a real quality fruit, and the best fruit was really raised in the Midwest, so the fruit quality tended tended to wane just a little bit when it was grown in other parts of the world, so this was impacting the reputation of the variety, so they started restricting restricting varieties and giving them different names. If they're going to be grown in the Northwest, they're going to be called one thing. If they're introduced throughout the rest of the world, another, just so they don't, they can keep the quality associated with the Midwest apple. But Honeycrisp was open. Uh, Zest Star, which is the old Star, became Zestar, which is another great apple. That's open source. Anyone can buy it. Then they went to a series of them uh, that they restricted just to commercial growers so they could in fact, determine where these uh, trees are going to be grown, and you had to meet certain qualifications. Just to keep the standards up, and they were—they're all patented now. And but those were not going to be released uh, until the patents were out, released to the general public about 17 years after the introduction. So, Sweet Tango is one in that series. First Kiss. These, these are names that, you, and you're probably seeing the fruit in the grocery stores right now. Again, they're great apples. But uh, kudos—it's my information. It will be open source. So. You're going to be able to buy that as a as a homeowner, and uh, it may take a little while for the nurseries to get some stock up. It takes a while to grow out these trees, so the, by the time you buy a tree uh, from your local nursery, it might be six, five, six years old already. So it takes mm-hmm. a little while to build up uh, stock and make it available, but it will be available. It's got I haven't tried it of course, but it's got uh, obviously great parentage. And um, it's it's also got a deeper red color, which I think is going to be very, very appealing. Uh, both uh, Honeycrisp as well as Zestar, um, you know, have kind of a yellow or reddish color, a kind of a flecked color. This is more of a deep red uh, color to it. So I think it's going to be extremely appealing, and we're all kind of looking forward to being able to get the first uh, trees and get them in the ground. So it's fun, Pat. It's nice to hear from yeah. you as well. <laughs> Did you get a frost over there where you're located? Uh,
2: not, not yet. Um,
1: wow, I have that's one great. one more
2: question uh, about daylilies, these beautiful daylilies. You know, you see the picture and they send them to you, and then, but can they be um, taken out of their hybrid hybridization by uh, pollination? Because sometimes yeah, it's it seems a- like I have daylilies that I'm expecting and e- how long would it take before I even know if I got what I bought you know what I
1: mean <laughs> yeah they can make it with hybrids they can definitely work their way uh, out particularly uh,
2: they? that's what I wanted yeah, to know if, if the bees and things would change them if they're planted side by side
1: well if they come, if they come and if they spread just from the original plants from the genetic material they should be consistent but we can also get some um, some movement, some seeding that occurs, and then this is where we get some of the variability from year to year. So it's it's possible, and sometimes they tend to uh, just diminish over time. Uh, the originals, of course, the old heirlooms, uh, they stay fairly consistent, but some of the newer hybrids, uh, they can uh, they can change up a little bit on you, but should not be from. Uh, from the underground rhizomes that spread from the original parent plant. So you're going to be good, uh, should be good for the most part, and most of when these lilies get established and begin to spread a good, hardy plant like that, they should stay consistent. The term we use, they should stay true to type, true to the way they were introduced. Hey, that's but what I wanted There's still, say. Yeah, there still can be uh, changes that do occur over time. So for the most part, you're going to be okay.
2: You get seeds from them. And how long does it take you to grow from seed um, that was produced by them uh, to a full plant? How long will that take?
1: Well, it's going to take, I would say, probably because you're going to have, you know, you'll seed them out the first year if you want to give it a try. That's where the variability will come in, of course, in that next uh, second and third generation when we're coming from from seed, and uh, that probably does take about three to four years before you actually get uh, a, a decent size plant okay. from those. Yes, yeah. so that takes a while. Well, then, if you don't buy them
2: in um, a clump, then
1: right? Yeah, uh, generally uh, we recommend buying in the clump or the vegetative material. You're going to get flowering much faster, and then you don't have to worry about this this variability. But sometimes it is kind of fun to uh, save the seed. You can do this with so many plants. A, tomato, a potato would be an example. I know you're a vegetable grower, and uh, yeah. we, of course, take the potato from the tuber, which should be remain consistent, but you can actually transfer pollen uh, from the flower, which is on uh, the upper portion of the potato plant as well, and this is where you get uh, some of the variability there, Pat.
2: Okay. And how about this pirate bug that have you? Are you aware of that? It bites like everything, and it's a tiny little thing have
1: you had have you had that experience with it i I've, I've not experienced it i've read about it but i've not uh, experienced yes. it at all yes
2: yes i oh, have yeah and and uh, of course the ticks are still out you know working in the gardens and stuff too but i'm just wondering if you knew anything about this pirate bug yeah
1: i, I really don't know a lot about it a lot of these insects uh, they'll come they'll come up from the south of course uh, yep, yep. and and uh, they often don't get here, but that's the first time you're the first person that's mentioned. You've actually seen it and been bitten by it. Is that right? Yep.
2: Yep.
1: They bite. Well, we'll have to research that one and see what we got going there, that
2: Okay. Well, I thank you. I just really wondered about my daylilies because some of them aren't the color that I bought. You know what I mean? And
1: yes. They can they can bleed out here. There's no doubt about that. Uh, they should at least in that first year be consistent. If they're not, sometimes there can be problems on the productive side as well. Uh, making sure that you get the right varieties. We sadly see this in a lot of uh, plant material, seed material, and other things. Sometimes they can get mixed up at the uh, at the productive level too. So um, they okay, should be consistent that's what I first wondered, year two at least the
2: right things or what or. And if they don't yes. bloom, then
1: what? You know, is that a light problem or? Um, well, yeah, it certainly can be there. It it can be a timing problem. You know, the flowers, the reproductive portion of plants. So sometimes it takes a few years before they really start to flower. They go from the juvenile to the adult uh, okay. phase. So some sometimes we have to be just a little bit more patient with uh, perennial material, okay. uh, such as the day So a little patience yeah. there and. And hopefully they should be good and winter-hardy for you, so you shouldn't have an issue there. The day-lilies tend to be very hardy, don't need to be protected, but the moisture is going to be good that we're getting, and then hopefully we get a little snow before we get some real cold temperatures Mm That How how are your tomato crop ripening? Are you uh,
2: you coming along there? I think the chipmunks were in there. I have a lot of critters around, and I think they were feasting on them well before ours were, but I... I was oh, able okay. to oven dry some, but you know, not like other years.
1: No. Yeah, it, every year is a little different. The tomato crop was a puzzle for us this year. There's a lot of factors that come in getting blossom set, fruit set, and then ultimately fruit development. And uh, but uh, now, folks are getting uh, buying some pretty decent tomatoes. You know, we got a salsa fest coming up. You're probably aware of that. A week from uh, today, actually, and really? um, that's a that's always a real fun event. Uh, going to be held at Salem Lutheran Church right in Hermantown here in Duluth, outside of Duluth, and, um, you know, people are going to bring in, we've got a little salsa contest, so we've got some oh. real good interest, so some folks, I think, have really been able to produce tomatoes, uh, kind of the backbone of a good salsa.
2: Yes, well, so the, I thought the skins were a lot tougher this year, too.
1: Yeah, I kind of noticed that. On my paste tomatoes, they seem like they're a little tougher. And anything that um, anything that matured later in the season under these cooler temperatures, we tend to get a little tougher skin there. So what you might be picking now is going to be just a little a little firmer skin on the outside, without a doubt. Okay.
2: Uh, and the kudo is it going to be for our zone,
1: or um, you don't know that yet? Oh boy, that's a good question. I I know it's going to be uh, zone four where you are, so I I think that you're going to be just fine. Uh, We, of course, have got uh, Zone 3 um, uh, farther north, and uh, Honeycrisp, uh, I I would suspect that it's probably going to be introduced as a Zone 4 tree. You're going to be fine, and anyone with lake effect is going to be fine. And then you're going to have to look for protected locations as you get farther north.
2: Well, the apples have been a lot smaller this year on our side here, but are they still going to be getting bigger? Or are
1: they done growing um, for the year? No, they're they're pretty much done growing for the year, and, and you want to watch them a little bit because you can get uh, you obviously can get uh, damage when we get temperatures not at the freezing level or 30, but anything below 30, you want to get them off the off the trees, or at least 28, they can freeze on the trees. So you want to make sure you get them, but they're pretty well set up and growing, and uh, that can be the size can be related to real heavy fruit year if in fact there was a. A lot of fruit there. Then the size gets a little smaller. And assuming that there was enough moisture, but you were extremely dry there as well in the Patterson Park area. Is that correct?
2: Right, and we were watering too, but they just all seem smaller.
1: Yeah, that yeah. oftentimes on a mature tree can be the fact that there's a real heavy fruit load, so there just isn't enough energy to go around. So the fruit, you got it's there in abundance. There's plenty of it, but the individual fruits are a little bit smaller. Try dropping a little if you get a, a, a real heavy fruit set um, after the fertilization has occurred. The fruits are very small. Try dropping some of those ad- additional fruit, and that will increase the size for you.
2: Okay. Okay.
0: Thank okay. you for the call. Appreciate it. We're at uh, 937. We've got to take a quick break uh, as the Bob Olin Show continues on KDAL. We are back. More of the Bob Olin Show here on the 10th of October. Bob, let's talk about that huge pumpkin grown in Anoka County in Minnesota. <laughs> they took it out to the, uh, I guess, contest at Half Moon Bay, California. The pumpkin weighed in at nearly 3,000 pounds, 2,749 pounds. That is the hugest pumpkin ever in the world. Travis Geinger of Anoka was the grower of the giant gourd, breaking the previous record of 2,700-pound pumpkin that was grown in Italy. He gets uh, $9 a pound for his winning entry, which gives him about $30,000. Uh, oh, he also gets $30,000 for breaking the world record. He said it cost him about 15000 to grow this thing. Taking good care of it, I guess, in uh, Anoka. How he got it out to California, I have no idea, but there you go. Biggest ever pumpkin.
1: Thank you for that update. Yeah, uh, who says we can't grow some great stuff oh, here right. in uh, in Minnesota? Right. I know it's kind of interesting because they've got a lot of growers down there. They got a big sand plain down there, which is just about ideal when you have a hot, bright year like oh. this. With plenty of irrigation. So I think that's probably uh, what that's about. And um, I've not been down. I've really not been down in that area and seen their productivity. I just know that they do grow a lot of pumpkins down there. We. Uh, and there's been interest for sure in, yeah. in growing the largest pumpkins, but that I'd heard about that. Uh, it's kind of a nice feather in the cap for uh, <laughs> growers in Minnesota in general. But uh, we don't quite have those conditions up here. But nonetheless, uh, we had some very large vegetables as well. If you had the, if you had the moisture available. I mean, we got tremendous, uh, even our cold season crops, beautiful heads of broccoli and large heads of cauliflower, big beets, and (laughs) Mm -hmm. things that really surprised me because we had all of this wonderful sunlight, and it was hot and dry, not extremely hot, where you slow things down. You really don't want those real intense temperatures. You want just about what we had. Our average temperatures in July were about 75 degrees. Actually, June, July, and August were about in that range, daytime Mm -hmm. temperatures. And uh, this is just about ideal with lots of sunlight day after day, and you had to supply the water, and then that fifteen thousand pounds to to grow one pump or fifteen thousand dollars you said to grow one pumpkin. Uh, that's making a real a commitment there. So I'm sure that includes water and fertility as well as genetics and uh, all the care that he gave. That I think is an art in and of itself. But that's a rather remarkable story there, Dave.
0: Yeah, and you said uh, these are. Particular seeds meant to grow huge, right?
1: Yeah, and we're uh, it started with the Atlantic Giant and any other number of varieties. And, yeah. of course, it gets to be very, very uh, proprietary. Let's put it that way. Now, mm-hmm. he got the nice awards, a couple of them there, so yeah. nice economic return. But the real economic return is going to be in that genetic material, the seeds that are produced from ah. that often. So I'm sure that, uh, that that will be probably a, uh, a return for him a long time to come. So probably turned out to be a pretty good uh, $15,000 investment for him. But that, that's a lot of fun. I'm glad you brought that all to our attention. <laughs> i
0: wonder how many seeds are in a 3,000-pound pumpkin. There must be a yeah. lot of seeds in there. Uh,
1: there would be plenty. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure. Uh, one never knows how many they're going to release and how you would get them and so forth. But huh. there's... Uh, he started with, with someone else's seed, of course, at some yeah. point, and and uh, continued to select and maybe doing some of his own crossing, so he might have something that's very proprietary. Wow. That whole big group, uh, the uh, Pepe group, uh, the Q are, are very, very interesting. They cross very readily. We talked about that a little bit with seed crossing on potatoes and and daylilies, but certainly the pumpkin family, pumpkin and squash, are four different species, and they cross up like crazy. So you never know when you're going to come up with something that really is uh, is new and, and really quite spectacular. So Dave, if we could digress, uh, the, yeah. the tomato phenomenon that we talked about a little bit was really fascinating me this year because people either had crops of tomatoes or they struggled with tomatoes. And so much of this is timing. It's varieties. It's weather related. There can be any number of factors that can can influence uh, the productivity uh, of your own vegetable garden. So many people said, "I've never had a year like this," and so many people said, "I've never been blank like this." Same location, same varieties. So it's it was all over the board this year. And uh, tomato being the number one. Home uh, vegetable crop, which is interesting, because the longest time uh, they were assumed that uh, this isn't the nightshade family, and then the assumption was that the fruit was poisonous, and of course it was debunked and became the most popular uh, garden crop, certainly in North America, probably in the world. So, tomatoes, lots of it. We got our salsa test coming up one week from today, on October seventeenth. I mentioned that earlier. That's going to be a lot of fun for people that got tomatoes. We got a contest. If you want to enter it. Uh, working with the St. Louis County Master Gardeners. Uh, we, we've we done this in the past, our Garden Fest series in the fall, and uh, they prepare a number of uh, dishes. These are going to be Salsa Fest dishes, not mm-hmm. just straight Salsa Fest, but uh, you get an opportunity to sample all of these. We are going to press today, as a matter of fact, with the recipe book. I think it's 52, 54 pages, something wow. like that in length. Uh, so there's going to be a nice recipe book, uh, uh, recipe resource book. So we're about education, so we're going to... Uh, myself and my uh, good colleague, Troy Salzer, are going to be talking a little bit about growing out some of the major components that go into salsa, tomatoes, uh, some of the peppers and some of the things we've learned over the last couple of years on some of these warm season crops. Uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit on garlic as well and some of the herbs and a bit on food safety. I really want to emphasize this. Um if you're going to be doing any canning, it's real interesting. We've got more people now starting to ferment and starting to can and starting to uh go back to the old old methods uh certainly not uh, a preponderance of people, but numbers that are growing all the time so if you're going to be pressure canning something uh for food safety, you want to make sure that you've got a a uh, gauge that's accurate on your pressure canner. So we're going to have a table set up for testing pressure canning gauges. Bring your lid and gauges, gauges in. you got to get times and temperatures right, and if your gauge is off, then you're in trouble. A lot of people are, are going back and digging something out of the basement, an old pressure canner or grandma's pressure canner. It's got an old gauge on it, the old seal's on it. So you want to make sure that you're safe there. So we're going to be doing that one week from tonight. Uh, October 17th. There's a $20 charge, but that includes the education, it includes the recipe book, it includes um, all the sampling uh, for your folks. It starts at, uh, registration starts at 515 Salem Lutheran Church, just uh, north of the, um, the Haynes uh, Piedmont Avenue intersection. Very easy to find, very cooperative. So uh, just Google uh, Salza Fest extension. You can get all the details and sign up for it so we have an idea so we Get enough of these recipe books printed. We got a right. nice pre registration. It should be a great
0: evening for everybody. I would imagine the limited participation, right? You only got room for so many.
1: We only have room for so many. Yeah. And I'm thinking um, we're probably going to be in the 50 60 person range. So wow. make sure if you want to attend that you get in there quickly. We'll have a nice experience for everybody. And we'll have educational displays. And it's just one right. time we've got a recipe contest, you got a great salsa. Just to indicate that you want to enter the contest. Those uh, salsas have to be there early. We got celebrity judges that are going to help us judge. So, all the activity. The program begins at six o'clock. will be done by eight thirty. Right. And um, if you're bringing a recipe, uh, it has to be here about five fifteen. If you're bringing a uh, salsa to enter into the contest, so it's going to be a fun time. Uh, well, a great time. Remind people that again next week. But register yeah. now. Google Salsa Fest extension, and you will see it. Uh, up there and all the details for you. Call in a registration or uh, or register via uh, the Internet, and uh, we hope to see a lot of folks out for this event.
0: Sounds good. We'll take another break, Bob. Be right back. More of the Bob Olin Show on the way. And we are back, final portion of the uh, Bob Olin Show here on a Tuesday. Bob, how the big, uh, uh, I think, uh, I don't oh. know where you had, some kind of a sale going on last we, week?
1: Yeah, it we, we went extremely well. We, good. Uh, you know, was county master gardeners had got a, uh, Ball bulb sales, very unique. A lot of unique bulbs. Tremendous turnout. They just really uh, did a wonderful job. We did a little educational piece there. A lot of people were really interested. And uh, that turned out to be really a a very, very nice event. So kudos to all and folks that showed up. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I want to sneak a little bit more of this educational plots in for people you know we we would really hit some frost here over the last uh couple of nights most people away from the lake the lakes, of course a, a real nice buffer for a lot of folks but mm-hmm. uh we kind of had our first killing frost a lot of different locations and you know i we use that kind of as a guide and I'm i talked a little bit earlier about being a little bit conscious of not over fertilizing lawns at this point that fertility, last fertility should probably go on two to three weeks before that first frost, just so we have plenty of time for that plant to pick up the, the fertility. This is the lawn plants now. These are the perennial grass species that common Kentucky blues and the the fescues. And we want them to pick up that fertility and grow with it but not get a soft growth that can occur. If you go too late in the season still lush its growth with all all the moisture we've had, but we get kind of a soft growth. So Two to three weeks before that frost, we want to uh, get our fertility down or a little bit earlier in the fall if possible. And then two to three weeks after that frost, that's when we want to be planting our spring flowering bulbs and planting our garlic. So we're probably still a little early for putting mm-hmm. spring flowering bulbs in the ground. We could, uh, we've been a little below normal, Dave, but as you know, in terms of temperature, we can be above normal in a hurry as well. <laughs> so we probably want to delay the planting of our spring flowering bulbs Another um, week or so, we typically have used October 15th as a good planting date, but toward the end of October, we want them down in the ground. Uh, we want the roots to get established, but we don't want that growing tip to ever emerge because it could be hit by a, by a sudden real cold spell. So two to three weeks on either side of that frost. So uh, those are some guidelines that we like to use uh, in the Northland here. Dave, and
0: Bob, the I, I know the farmers' markets are going strong here. Yet uh, tomorrow, and again on Saturday,
1: going very strong. Uh, Duluth farmers' markets—the one market that keeps going right through October. Wow! And it's kind of interesting because we still have summer crops out there. We've got some eggplant, tomatoes, and other things <laughs> that are there, as well as a tremendous collection of a nice winter squash, uh, beautiful potatoes, onions, uh, any number of fall crops that are coming in and locally grown is quite different. It's just very, very high quality. Our growers do a very, very nice job, and they're all fighting the weather as well, just like home gardeners, but uh, uh, a lot of them do a very good job, and the tables will be full. That's the Duluth Farmer's Market. It's covered. If it's a little wet, if it's a little Mm -hmm. cool, it's always warm on the inside. Two to five on Wednesday afternoons, and then Saturday is great time. Bring the kids out. Uh, They get a token. We get music. Uh, That's eight to twelve on Saturday, and very interesting phenomenon that we're seeing among people. There is an awareness out there that just eating real food rather than everything that's processed. A lot of discussion about that now, the importance of that, the awareness of that. And then this phenomenon called fermentation where, um, you know, for years we evolved with fermentation being a main storage uh, mechanism. We didn't have freezers, didn't have a lot of these canning systems. So fermentation was a big deal and all of the very specific uh biome that's associated with fermented food i'm really surprised the number of people that are starting to ferment uh their food and picking up product and and fermenting canning storing so a lot of these uh veggies are going to be there for folks uh it's a good time the markets are still full and again two to five 14th avenue east on third street for the farmer's market and then eight till noon uh on saturdays which is always just a A great time regardless of the weather. So thank you, Dave, and thank you for all of our callers. Uh, uh, A lot of interesting stuff going on in this great uh, hobby called uh, gardening. It's just a good time for everybody.
0: Thank you, Bob. We'll catch you back here again next Tuesday. We'll do it again. You bet. Thank you, Dave. Bob Olin Show here on KDAL at Checking the Weather Forecast coming up.